Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. We're continuing a series in the book of Acts. Uh, We're looking at the church and what the church is and the type of church that we want to be. And while we're not going verse by verse through the book of Acts, we're kind of hopping and skipping through and looking at these different descriptors. And so week one, we looked at Acts chapter one and what it means to be a praying church. We'll be a church that does everything uh, soaked in prayer, dependent upon the spirit to empower us for the people he wants us to be. Uh, We looked at week two in Acts chapter two at the gospel and how the gospel is central to everything we do. Everything we do flows from the hope of what Christ has done for us. Uh, Week three, we looked at what it means to be a community. And so we live these realities out as a church community, submitting to the the gospel, to the Bible's teaching, to loving and caring for each other, praying together. Um, We looked at what it means to be the global church last week and how we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. It's not just city on a hill and what we're doing here in in JP, right by the Forest Hill Station. It's bigger than the city on a hill network. It's bigger than Boston. We're connected to something much larger than ourselves, and that informs how we live as the church. And this morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to be the multicultural church. What does it mean to be a church that is made up of people from multiple cultures? There's lots of ways that you could define this, but I want to define it like this. The multicultural church is a faith community of people from different cultures who still express their cultural diversity with a common hope in Jesus. I'm going to say it one more time. A faith community of people from different cultures who still express their cultural diversity while holding a common hope in Jesus. And what I mean is it's a group of people that it's not just skin color, it's not just country of origin, but it's actually the cultures that we embody, that we feel the freedom to express who God has uniquely designed us to be, but what unites us together is we have a common hope in Christ that anyone from anywhere can receive the forgiveness of Jesus and be brought into God's family. That's an appropriate point to say, amen, amen. (laughs) We desire to be this at City on a Hill. It's okay to respond, I promise. You can talk to me. Um, We want to be this. We want to be this. And I believe that every church should really desire to be a reflection of its city and its makeup. It should desire to be a redeemed cross segment of the cultural diversity of its city. And as City on the Hill, here where we're at, we are positioned in one of the most unique and strategic places in the city of Boston to experience this type of multicultural church. Forest Hill Station is unique because five different Boston neighborhoods all collide in one place. The people come here every single day from Jamaica Plain, Roslindale, Roxbury, West Roxbury, Hyde Park, Mattapan, Dorchester. Um, People from outlying neighborhoods all come together in this one place. And you see a diversity of culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, background, religious affiliation, all these people coming together in one place. And so we have a unique opportunity to image the kingdom of God here at City on a Hill. It's important that we desire and long after becoming a multicultural church. And there are three reasons revealed from the text this morning that I want to look at that explain why. The first reason is that this has been the plan from the beginning. From the very beginning of the scriptures, it has been God's plan that a multicultural people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would glorify his name. 
And so to give us a little bit of context for what we're looking at here from the section, the Mizzeline Red, if you look at the beginning of chapter 10, we see an interaction between Peter, the apostle, and a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was leading a group of people called the Italian cohort, which is what I'm going to start calling my family from now on is the Italian cohort. Um, I got to visit Italy this, this past spring and man, it was amazing. Uh, and so that's my, our new nickname is the Italian cohort. Um, they're, they're called together. Uh, they're, they're worshiping God as a group of Gentiles. So to give a little bit of context, if you're not familiar with biblical language, those were non-Jews, people who were not part of God's original covenant people who still feared God, even though they weren't ethnically Jewish, they wanted to long after God. And they're together, they're praying together, they're seeking God continually. And we see that the Lord hears them and then answers their prayer through a vision and gives them a vision of Peter. And he tells them to go and seek Peter and ask Peter, tell him who you are and explain that you want to know who God is. And we see here that God is working on Cornelius and the Italian cohort, but he's also working on Peter. God is is working on Peter. We're going to see how in just a second, because God appears to Peter in this vision and in in a trance, he sees God. And and what happens is we see this giant blanket uh, that looks like a barbecue restaurant just floating down from heaven. There's like pulled pork and pigs, there's everything you can imagine floating down on this blanket. And these are all sorts of foods that Peter, as an Orthodox Jew, would not have been allowed to eat. According to the Jewish law, he would would have been considered unclean food. And he rejects it as a good Jew and says, I can't eat these things because these things are unclean. And the Lord tells him, he says, do not call unclean what I've declared to be clean. He's not just talking about the food. He's talking about the people who eat this type of food. God rebukes him. And we see three times it it took some convincing for Peter. Peter is a bit hard-headed. If you know, if you've read the Bible, we see Peter over and over again. He's having to be taught the same lesson over and over again. It took some convincing. He tells him three times. And Peter's probably thinking, man, Surely this has to be a mistake. Maybe I'm I'm hearing God wrong because he's grown up his entire life hearing, you don't eat this type of food. You you don't associate with certain types of people. You you don't do these things. Peter is, is working on, is being worked on by God. Peter is confused as he hears a knock on the door and these men show up to Peter's house. And we see that God is working on him because Peter then invites them into his house. People, he'd probably never had a Gentile into his home before. He invites them in and he says, stay with me for a little while and so we can sort all these weird things that are happening to both of us out. And we see Peter wrestling in real time with his own ethnicity and his own tradition as he invites them in his house. And, and, and when Peter enters, Cornelius falls before him. Peter lifts him up and says, stand up. I too am a man. So he's, he's wrestling with some of these ideas. And we get to verse 28. And he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. He, he just puts out the the part that nobody's saying right there on Front Street. People like you and people like me don't hang out. We we don't get together. We don't spend time together. Peter voted a certain way and had certain ideas about non-Jewish people and who could approach God. But then we see that God is working on Peter's heart because he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
And, and the men eagerly approach Peter and they ask him, tell us the gospel. I mean, talk about an eager audience. I don't know if you ever tried to share the gospel with someone before and, and, and they, they're, they're resistant to the gospel. It's really, really refreshing when you try to share Jesus with someone and they're like, please tell me. Here, here, they say, Peter, please tell me at the end of verse 33. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He needs no convincing. We are ready. But we see Peter wrestling with these things. And even though Cornelius and the Italian cohort, they're ready to hear these things, Peter is still a bit of a skeptic. He enters in, and you've got to imagine, looking back, Jesus, I mean, he heard Jesus' words in Acts 1.8, right? Go to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and share the good news of the gospel. He had seen Jesus cross racial barriers before in Samaria when he went to the Samaritan woman at the well and told her how she could be forgiven. And surely he's probably thinking, that's some sort of outlier. This can't be the pattern. And we understand skepticism because we live in a world that is training us to be skeptical. It's training us to believe that things like this are just high in the sky. These things like this just don't happen. I mean, verse 35 is a, is a lovely vision, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The idea that people from every tr- nation and ethnicity could come together and live peacefully seems like something that's just not possible. And so whether you enter into this this morning with eagerness or you enter into this a little bit skeptical, God's plan from the beginning answers both the eager and the skeptic. There's a curious statement at the beginning of verse 34. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter finally gets what God had been doing from the very beginning. And if you look at the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God's plan was to fill the world with people who worshipped him that every person would worship God. And we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, he said that he made people, both man and woman, in his image, meaning that they would be a reflection as image bearers of God's goodness, of God's character, and God's will. We see in Genesis 2 that he gives them a mandate and that this mandate was that they would go and cultivate the world and fill the world with his glory. And what's clear from both the Bible and from from human history is that this filling of the world would not be monoethnic, that the filling of this world would not be from one people or from one language, but that there would be ethnic, cultural, and linguistic diversity, a group of people across the world glorifying God. And we see little hints of this in the book of Genesis, that this was the plan from the beginning, because if you look at Noah's three sons, their names roughly translate to light, medium, and dark. So no matter where you fall on the pigment scale, God has created you in his image to glorify him. We see that languages naturally change over time. In fact, my daughter is a linguistic nerd. She's up there hanging out in the booth. She's going to go into that probably for her career. She loves this kind of stuff. But about every 500 to 1,000 years, if you were to separate a group of people, their languages would become completely different. So what God has done purposefully is spread out people across the world, and their language is changing, culture is changing, so that the whole world would be filled with this beautiful tapestry of culture and languages rejoicing in God. 
It's like as we were singing this morning, we wouldn't just want to hear the melody, we also want to hear the harmony. I remember years ago, I got to see Hootie and the Blowfish, which shows how old I'm getting, uh, in concert. And one of the most beautiful things happened is they got around, the four guys got around a single microphone and began to sing, sing hymns in four-part harmony. The beauty of these different sounds and tones singing the same song together. There's a beauty as God brings together culture and languages. And this pattern continues through Genesis. It continues as God calls out a single people, a single person that's going to bless the whole world. And we see this through Abraham's family, which would be the Jewish people. We see this happening that this people would be an attractive people, that the way that they live would be a lighthouse beaconing all people to come and live in this way. And in Deuteronomy 4, this is what Jeff Mooney calls a fishbowl community. If you imagine a fishbowl, you're looking at the fish, they, they can't go anywhere, you see everything that they do. And he says, thinking of them as a fishbowl community is that they're comprised of cultural, political, judicial, and economic structures that testify to the presence of God and his unique wisdom, that the way that they lived was to be a picture of what a flourishing life looked like. But it was also intentional in that it called people into it. We see this in Psalm chapter 67. In the 67th Psalm, it says this. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples, not people, peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations, not nation, be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And we see this happening throughout the Bible as people from every culture and nation and tribe are slowly being brought into God's family. We see this with people like Rahab and Ruth and how God sent Jonah to the Ninevites, the most reluctant missionary ever sent to a group of people he would have considered other. We see God calling them together. And when Peter understands this, he begins to overcome the bias he had had toward an entire group of people. And what he realizes is that in Jesus, there are no second-class people in the kingdom of God. There are no people who are other in the kingdom of God. And do you know what everyone means in verse 35? Or anyone? It means anyone. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that. It means anyone can get in on this. Anyone who fears God, who takes Jesus seriously, who sees what God has done for them through Christ and trusts him by faith alone. That this idea of the worth of every person is rooted in creation. There should be no people who care more about justice and equity and equality than the church. Because we understand how people have been created in the image of God. And when we pursue this vision with Jesus at the center, it demands we treat each other that way. We seek to be a family because of what God has wanted from the beginning. So it's been the plan from the beginning, but secondly, the multicultural church matters because it's the strategy for how the kingdom advances. So this is not just an Old Testament thing, this is a New Testament reality as well. And the New Testament church is figuring out how to make this happen. This is where the, the rubber meets the road. And if we're going to be realistic, it's not easy. It's not easy to be a church for multiple cultures. 
the easy thing for us to do would be to hang out with people who look like us, who think like us, or from the same part of the country as us, who speak the same language as us. That's the easy thing to do. It, it wasn't easy for the early church. They had to figure this stuff out. But what they found is that most things in life that are worth it are difficult. Most things in life that are worth it take work. And what they, the multicultural church does to advance the kingdom is it creates a space for reconciliation. If you look over at Galatians chapter 2, we see Peter who, it's, it's always Peter, by the way. Anytime there's somebody messing up, it's, so if you're one of those people who are like, I just keep screwing up, you got a friend in Peter, okay? You're going to be okay. It's always Peter. Peter goes to the Galatian church and he's there and, and they're, they're eating food that didn't fit the law. And so he's eating like, you know, pulled pork for the first time, loving his life. And, and he's having a great time until his Jewish brothers come who were the rule followers. And as soon as they came, he began to hide all the barbecue sauce. He decided he, we weren't, we weren't going to do this. And he begins to treat them like he used to treat them. What Peter did was put his culture above his brothers and sisters in Christ. He forgot that he had been unified by something greater than his heritage. But the hope of the gospel and the reason that a multicultural church can be a place for reconciliation is that the unity that Jesus gives us allows us to address our hurts. It gives us the tools to address our past and to address injustice. We see this in our own country. I don't think I have to remind you too much of the fact that racial injustice and inequity have been woven into the fabric of our country from the slave trade to the three-fifths compromise to Jim Crow to redlining, mass incarceration. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time convincing you that these things are a reality. And there have been times in the history where the church has been complicit or silent in these things. But the church has the hope of the world to lead the way out of this. The church has the hope here to be a picture of real, true reconciliation because there's no greater message of forgiveness and reconciliation than what Jesus has done for us. And because he's done that for us, the gospel gives us the tools that we need to recognize and right wrongs. It gave Peter the humility to say, you know what? You're right. I messed up. I, I treated people horribly. It gave him the framework in which he could be forgiven and that things could be reconciled. And in the same way, our church can be a place of healing and reconciliation that's a picture to our city that the kingdom is moving. The sec secondly, it can be a space where culture is valued. If you look over at Acts chapter 15, we see that there was an early debate in the church about what the Gentiles needed to do. Did the Gentiles need to follow the Old Testament law? Did they, did they need to do these things? Because these were things that the Jewish people had done in order to separate themselves from other people, in order to be holy. And they come to Acts chapter 15, and the question really is this, is what does it mean to be a part of God's family? Do you have to become like a Jew? Do you have to take on the law? And what they realized is that to make them do that would be to make them change their culture in a way that wasn't healthy. Acts 15 at the end, it says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. 
In other words, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to take on all these laws and all these customs and all these things that were culturally Jewish, but also if you're a Jewish, you didn't have to stop being Jewish. You can still keep going to the festivals and you can still keep doing these things. And what we begin to realize is that each person, you were made your culture. If you were, if you were born Haitian, God created you Haitian on purpose. If you were born Irish or Italian or, or Egyptian or, or, or whatever God has created you to be, he created you that and gave you that language and gave you that experience so that you could glorify him in a unique way. And the church is better for it. And what each of us are called to do when it comes to our culture is to do three things. Number one is rejoice. There are aspects of every culture that we can rejoice in. And if we had time, I love to just call out the things about our culture that we love. I would encourage you this week to share with somebody, maybe in your community group, what's one thing about your culture you think is just the best? You can argue about whose food's better or whatever you want to do. Secondly, is there are things we have to redeem. There's aspects of culture that aren't necessarily bad, but get used in a way that just isn't healthy. What are aspects that we can redeem? Thirdly, is there are things we have to outright reject. There's something in every single culture that has to be rejected. And if you look at the things at the end of Acts 15, the, the blood and the idols and sexual immorality, those are just things that happened in, in, in Gentile culture. When you got together for a party, those were just things that happened. There are things that have to be rejected. And so we want to be a church where we value every culture. And what this means is that you can be yourself. You don't have to fake it to belong here. You don't have to tone it down to belong here. I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to be me, okay? I'm just going to be myself. I'm going to tell the jokes I tell. I'm going to talk about Lord of the Rings. I'm going to talk about things I like, okay? Because you know what I want you to do? I want you to talk about things you like. I want you to be yourself. I want you to be who you are. You don't have to change your culture to be accepted here. And I want you to notice how the space for reconciliation and the freedom to express your culture empower the church. We see as you go through the book of Acts that a multicultural group of people begin to change the world. It mobilizes the church for God's mission. And so throughout the really Acts and throughout all of Paul's letters, we see that he begins to start name dropping people. Now, there are two types of people who name drop. You got a name dropper who name drops to make themselves look good. It's like, you know, I know I'm like third cousins with Taylor Swift's bodyguard. Like, you know, somebody like that. There's those types of people. And there are people who, who name drop in order to make others look good. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul does this to highlight other leaders. And so just on the screen, you can see a few of Paul's shout outs to people across his letters we see that he calls out Hebrews like Barnabas and Timothy and John Mark and several others. He name drops a man named Simeon in Acts 13, or he's mentioned in Acts 13, who's African. His name also means, is also Niger. He name drops Asians like Tychicus. He name drops, actually what's amazing is people who are likely from the British islands like Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. Several Greek brothers and sisters he names such as Stephanus and Apollos and Demas and Luke. And even beyond ethnic diversity, we see he begins to identify people who don't normally get identified. He mentions women like Priscilla, Phoebe, and Claudia. He highlights the important, like Menaean, whose life had been changed from being a close friend of Herod, people like Erastus, who was a city treasurer. And here's one that actually just floors me, is there are two lowly men named Tertius and Quartus in one of Paul's letters who he mentions. And here's what's 
amazing about this. The names Tertius and Quartus translate to third and fourth. They were slaves. And in that world, you would name someone Primus or Quartus or Tertius or Quintus because they were simply a number. In God's kingdom, every person, no matter where you come from, has value and worth and dignity and something to contribute to the kingdom of God. And here's what happens when all sorts of people from all sorts of cultures and all sorts of languages start to go into their spheres of influence, their families, their workplaces, and the neighborhoods. The kingdom of God advances. More people meet Jesus because people who've been uniquely shaped with the good news of Jesus go to their friends, their family, and to their culture. And because of this happening, the gospel ends up reaching as far as Britain, India, and Africa within the first 40 years of the church. And if you look across the world and just look across our city, there, Jesus is being worshipped in every language, culture, and form imaginable. And all of this is simply a foretaste of what's going to happen in the end when all types of people will worship Jesus together in one voice. It says in Revelation 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now my question is, what language will I be in? Every language, in one voice. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you want this. This is a value in our culture that we would be at peace with each other. And so this is why, lastly, I believe that the multicultural church is a defense of the Christian faith. We believe that there's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through Jesus. And we also believe that there's only one way for us to truly be united, and it's through what Christ has done. There's no other message, there's no other worldview that can get us here because the gospel is a message that anyone is welcome with open arms to come to Jesus. Only in Christianity do you enter in on equal footing that no one has an inherent advantage. No one has a head start or a leg up because of where they grew up or the color of their skin or their politics or whether you grew up religious or not or you were moral or not. There's no need to become a different culture. You simply have to trust Jesus alone. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It all comes down to Jesus, who invites anyone who will trust him to be in his family. And Jesus is the promise that God's heart for a multicultural people will come true. Look at verse 36. In verse 36, it says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This was a word sent to Israel that God would make his promise come true, that he's going to bring peace, true peace, peace we're all longing for. And he does so through a person in a time and place named Jesus. Jesus coming and and being a real person is important because he stepped into human history, a real flesh and blood Jewish man born in the first century because he's bringing real peace. He's making it happen in real time. It's not an empty promise. It's not a false promise, but it's a real flesh and blood Savior who came to save real flesh and blood people from every ethnic group and culture. And he gives this real salvation and unity. Look at verse 37. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. He's saying, you've seen the evidence. 
word is God now. You've, you've at least seen the deeds that Jesus has done. And then we see in verses 39 through 41 where Peter details how he and the apostles were given the task of taking the good news as witnesses who'd seen Jesus, who'd eaten with Jesus, who'd shared life with Jesus, who saw him die and raise again to take that good news to every person everywhere. What changes people to do that? What pushed Peter outside his ethnic blinders and challenged his prejudice? It's Jesus' invitation for all people to come and be forgiven. The multicultural church is a defense because the gospel is the only message that brings cultures together with this type of unity and diversity. And when you see a word like everyone is welcome, it smashes racial bias and division. So a city on a hill gathers and longs to be a diverse, multicultural church. It shows the power of the gospel to draw us together as a family on mission together. And so for us, just a a few notes as, as we close up. Firstly, we have a lot of things to celebrate when it comes to this. I was counting up the other day, I believe we have a heritage from 11 different countries in our congregation, multiple languages spoken, multiple cultures coming together. It's it's a beautiful thing. Secondly, we got a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of room to grow in this. But we can trust that Jesus has given us this unity because we have a great hope in Jesus that binds us together and shapes us into the multicultural people that God wants us to be. Let's pray. 